This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've driven downtown at all in the past couple of years down here in Hamilton, uh, you have seen the green lanes, the pulled off bike lanes, the safety area for cyclists to ride around in. We have spent in this city a lot of time and a lot of money creating these bike lanes so that people who want to ride their bikes around have somewhere safe to be, hopefully not being run over by cars, hopefully. And those efforts have been met with mixed response. There are a lot of people who love them. Some, not so much, but one constant for the most part anyway, it seems, is that those who would describe themselves as urbanists, as people who live in the downtown, seem generally anyway, let's not make too many, too big a swath of something, but seem to be strongly on board with it. Overwhelmingly, it seems, on board with it, but not all. Lawrence Solomon is the executive director of the Urban Renaissance Institute. It's a, uh, an institute dedicated to helping cities and their regions flourish. Uh, he is a downtown, he is an urban guy. He joins me now. Lawrence, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. You are, by definition, by your job, you are an urban advocate. Your website talks about how much you want to be helping downtowns and urban areas. Uh, you are not, by the sounds of it, a huge fan of bike lanes. And I'm wondering, are you even allowed to say that as an urbanist? <laughs> it sounds almost like it's sacrilegious. Well, you know, our, our foundation was one of the original uh, groups that was advocating for uh, bicycles. We had a, a bicycle advocacy wing in our, in our foundation. And incidentally, our foundation was founded by Jane Jacobs. So if you're, if you're looking for, for urbanist roots, so you can't do much better than, than Energy Probe. Um, but... Um, the bike is wonderful. The, the bike lane is not. It's the bike lane that is harming cities, and it's, it's actually harming the, 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 the very fabric of cities because it's undermining what makes cities uh, so great. It's undermining the, 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 very, the, mi- the mixed uses to which we put um, cities. Um, when you dedicate part of a road just to bikes, what you're doing is you're removing not only the the right of of vehicles to use that that lane you're also removing the right of of, of vehicles to park there and when 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 you lose street parking uh, several things happen one is that is that the businesses that rely on street parking um, have difficulty and this this contributes to urban sprawl because if 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 people can't park conveniently then they'll go out in the suburbs and park there and and so businesses end up moving out of um, out of the downtown core, so we lose the you know, what makes cities, you know, the the downtown core is what, is what makes cities seem so special, and that's what we are, we're going to lose if if we lose that street parking. But what happens? We not only lose the street parking, the parking moves elsewhere, and the parking has to move. Uh, it either moves moves to side streets, and often we buildings get torn down, and sometimes we encroach on neighborhoods uh, in order to find. Uh, parking off on the side streets, or uh, buildings get get uh, torn down on main streets uh, and get replaced by parking garages. So, uh, by the mixed use that 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 makes cities so vibrant is compromised by bike lanes. You wrote a piece for the National Post. That's how I actually found out about your thoughts on this. And you call bike lanes and the infrastructure that accompanies them. This is a quote, a good idea gone wrong through unsustainable willy-nilly top-down planning. 
What what did you mean by that? Where, what is the planning that has gone awry here? Well, cities are in competition with with each other, and this is the sort of the the mayors and planning departments to become sort of cycling capitals. They're 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 talking in those terms, and they're spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars. London, Paris, Amsterdam, a lot of cities are spending um, figures like that uh, promoting cycling. And it's, a lot of it is, is sort of an ego thing among, among uh, city leaders. And they're not thinking of, about the, the people who actually use the city, the, the city. You know, cyclists use cities, and that's great. Um, but... Uh, a lot of people will never be able to to use bikes. So, you know, we have an aging society. A lot of people are old and infirm. A lot of people have disabilities. There are many reasons why bike lanes are 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 not useful for the majority of people. Plus, they harm businesses. Um, there, the idea was is fine. It's one of these things where on the on the face of it, it sounds sounds okay. But but when you when you see the the results, it's it's really not okay. If you though hung out at a bar, or a restaurant, or a coffee shop with several of other urbanists, your friends who believe in the downtown, and you said this, I gotta believe though you are getting some serious stink eye for these kind of comments. Well, yes, that's that that is the case. But you know when when uh, the bicycle advocacy movement first started, um, it was split on the issue of bike lanes, and in fact, the majority of cyclists then, and still many today, the majority of cyclists were opposed to bike lanes because they they didn't want to be restricted. They wanted bikes to 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 in fact be able to go anywhere, and and most of the city is not going to have bike lanes, so you're always going to have bikes uh, on 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 roads that don't have dedicated portions of them. The the real what we really need to do is to is to make sure that cyclists uh, are skilled at what they do and and right now many of them are not. In fact, you know, cycling deaths have been increasing. The the statistics from the European Union, where cycling is is being promoted very heavily by governments, shows that uh, that unlike uh, automobile fatalities, which for the for decades have been decreasing cycling fatalities have been increasing. I want to ask you, I want to go down through some of the things that are cited always as the major benefits of bike lanes. And you tell me whether they're a benefit or whether it isn't or whether you've got a different view on this. The first one, the obvious one is, if we have bike lanes, it allows people to dump their cars and get around and it will reduce congestion in the city by taking more cars off the streets. Well, anecdotally... Some people certainly will will get out of their cars and and cycle, but for the most part, people are are getting out of buses and 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 streetcars and subways uh, in 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 order to cycle. So it's public it's public transit <clears throat> that is uh, the main loser from uh, from the additional uh, bikes that are on the road. But what's also happening is because uh, so much of the road is being lost. <clears throat> To automobiles, sometimes it's a, an entire lane is being lost uh, to automobiles. Sometimes it, it, the the automobiles are, are just sort of cramped more. But in both cases, traffic becomes more congested. The, the the cars start to crawl, and and idle a lot. And when that happens, there's a lot more pollution uh, as a result. So the the few the few people who might get out of their cars in in order to to uh, uh, use the, the the bicycle paths are <clears throat> are overwhelmed 
by the the number of of, of um, I mean the, the pollution that's saved by, by those people leaving their cars is overwhelmed by the by the additional uh, soot that's created by cars idling and, and cars crawling along those roads. And that would seem to point to the, actually two of the ones that I was going to mention. One is that everyone says that bikes having bicycle lanes, having more people riding their bikes would be better for the environment and that it would be healthier for the people riding. You seem to have covered both of those. Well, it, it's not necessarily healthy. The London School of, of Medicine has cautioned about the, the risk in having bicycle lanes located next to vehicles because uh, cyclists breathe more heavily. The, the, they breathe, they, as a result of their heavy breathing, they inhale 2.3 times more soot than, than others would, and so that creates a health hazard for, uh, for cyclists. And plus there's the 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 danger to the uh, to the lives of cyclists because road fatalities have been going up the fatality rate for cycling per distance traveled compared to uh, to being in a car is eight times so if you're traveling a certain distance by car you're you're one eighth as likely to to die as as you are if you're traveling that distance by bicycle but isn't that the fault of the car drivers well we're not going to get rid of the cars um, it's, it's a fault of of, of uh, the way they the way we're trying to force the the bicycle and the car uh, on the same road because you you create a lot of very difficult situations where the the bicycle uh, especially at intersections because often the the bicycle path will leave the curb and go into the middle of the road so that cars are able to to make uh, right hand turns. So you end up with lots of conflict situations, and the conflicts are not just between bicycles and vehicles. There's a very serious problem between uh, conflicts between bicycles and pedestrians, and so much so that bicycles are being banned in, in different areas uh, because of the risk to, uh, to pedestrians. There's a couple of, of, of towns in, uh, in uh, England that have banned them, and, and a major thoroughfare in Sydney, Australia, uh, that used to be a bike commuter route has um, ha- has just uh, been ha- had the bike barred on it because of uh, fear of danger to pedestrians. So on that route, uh, uh, cars are allowed, trucks are allowed, motorcycles are allowed, buses are allowed, streetcars are allowed, but the bike is banned because it's seen as a risk to pedestrians. The one other one that's the big one is that bicycles take less toll on the road. Therefore, you don't have to repair the road as often. It's going to save money for the taxpayers in the long run. Well, that used to be the case. That used to be the case because because uh, bicycles actually don't, um, don't uh, uh, lead to much wear and tear on the road. So in the past, when bicycles shared the road, with the automobile, it was all a saving for taxpayers. But now a good portion of the road is only for bicycles, and that's very expensive. The, 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 the cyclists, you know, if, if, we were, if, we had told, if we were tolling our roads, and, and we are going in that direction, some cities are, are, are considering tolling all the roads. Uh, Singapore is, is, is doing that now. Um, but if, if we tolled all the roads so that the users paid for the cost of the roads, um, it would be a benefit to the car drivers, but the the bicyclists could never afford to 
to uh, ride on tolled bikeways, except where there was a high density of of, of, uh, of, of bicyclists, say around university campuses. There, it probably would make sense to have bicycle paths. But for most of the city, bicycle paths are very rarely used. And in in climates like Canada's, uh, you know, for a good part of the year, they're they're there's very, very little traffic on bicycle paths. So we're reserving a good part of the road for very, very scant use. Lawrence Solomon from the uh, Urban Renaissance Institute, Executive Director. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's, uh, it is one that will cause some folks who love their bike lanes to um, probably not be too happy to hear his criticisms of that. But go read the piece that he wrote at the National Post if you want to have more. It says, Laura Solomon, ban the bike. How cities made a huge mistake in promoting cycling. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Really interesting discussion yesterday at Hamilton City Council about the idea of a safe injection site. Now, they've decided they're going to go ahead with this. But the reason the discussion is so interesting is because you have a conundrum. You want to make people safe. But at the same time, you don't want to be giving tacit approval to illicit drug use. So how do you balance those two things? How do you say, we want you to be safe if you're using drugs, but don't use drugs? It's a tough one. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson is Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health. Uh, She was there yesterday. She was part of the conversation, and she joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, can you take me through, explain in general, sort of the philosophical view of what is the idea of a safe injection site? Not how you're going to do it yet, we're going to get to that, but what's the reason why you want to have one? Well, when we think about people who are using drugs and about drug use in the community, we think about four approaches that we need to take to trying to reduce that use. So we think about prevention, about helping people to not use drugs at all. We think about uh, treatment, about people who are using drugs and, uh, and helping them to get off those drugs. We think about enforcement in terms of illegal drug use and making sure that uh, the police are, are doing their job around uh, reducing drug use and crime related to drugs. And the, third, the fourth piece we think about is harm reduction, what we call harm reduction. So it, what it is doing is talking about people who are using drugs and drug use is out there, it's happening, it is um, part of what's in our community. And how can we reduce the harms associated with drug use? So how can we reduce the, the diseases that are spread through injection drug use like hepatitis C and HIV? How can we reduce uh, public injecting? How can we reduce injection literature in the community? How can we reduce overdoses? And so that's where supervised injection sites fit in because they've been seen to uh, decrease those things within a community and within the, the drug using community. So it's a balance, really, that, in, that illicit drugs are bad, but the alternative to what you can get from them is worse, so let's try and help the people who need it. That's right. They're, they're, we absolutely don't condone drug use, and supervised injection sites have not been seen to increase drug use in any way within a community or even within people who use drugs, drugs themselves. What they're there to do is to decrease the harms that happen both to the individuals that use drugs and to the community and family members around them um, by those that, who are in that stage of using drugs in their life and uh, who eventually we would like to try and move off it, but we're trying to reduce the harms while they are using while, of course, lives are the thing that we're talking about, really, there's also, there's no getting away from the fact that there is a financial part of this as well. Is it your belief that we say, even though it's going to cost money to run this, that we save money in the long term from other health problems from the people getting help here? 
that is what we've seen when we look at uh, other um, sites that have been set up. When you think about reducing the number of hepatitis C or HIV infections, which we know are serious long-term infections, when we talk about overdoses in the paramedic and and uh, police response to those, as well as the emergency department use and the healthcare system use, managing them in a different way and preventing uh, those overdoses. Yes, what we are seeing is a reduction in terms of the overall cost of, of these things to our society when we use supervised injection sites. Now, I don't think anybody or very few people have ever been to one, uh, thankfully for most people, and they probably never will. Give me an idea. How I mean, how big is a place? If you're going to have one of these that is useful for a city the size of Hamilton, what kind of staff are we talking about? How big, uh, how, how much use is this going to get? All those kind of things, numbers of people who are going to be flowing through this. Sure. I mean, those are the sorts of things that we that need to get worked out in the planning stage going from here. So if we look at what's happened in other uh, centers across the country, what we're, we're um, saying would be preferable in Hamilton is to follow the models that have an integrated service model. What that means is that there's social services, health services that are available at the site, as well as other harm reduction services like needle exchange and naloxone kit distribution that are available there. And in those, um, there are partners that come and work in those sites. So we're looking as public health to bring our harm reduction services there, but also other uh, community social services and hopefully healthcare services as well. So they, um, in those settings, they are a little bit larger uh, because they have people there who we can right away refer people to who are coming in who inject drugs. The um, actual uh, supervised injection component of it, there's usually somewhere in the, the range of, you know, several to ten sort of um, injection booths as they're often seen um, on the site. Now, if you have a mobile site, sometimes it's only just, you know, one to three that they can fit into a mobile van or, or a mobile home that's sometimes used for that purpose. But with a fixed site like we're uh, recommending for this first site, it's usually in that sort of 10 sort of range in terms of injecting booths. But we'll have to sort out the uh, the specific numbers as w- as any application goes forward. And does it have so, to be near a hospital, or is this a self-contained medical operation, so if something happened, they could be looked after right there? So they can be looked after. If something happened in terms of an overdose, that's part of the purpose of the site, is that whatever um, staff are there, and it's usually nursing staff, sometimes some medical staff who are there, are able to handle an overdose um, as it's happening to prevent it from, from you know, going into a full-fledged overdose. And so that keeps those people from going into the emergency room. Of course, if there was some other uh, emergency or if it was worse than something they could handle, they would have to call 911 and that person would need to go to an emergency department. But ideally, they're able to, to manage those overdoses on site. I want to walk through then how this works, because this is where I think a lot of people don't really understand what happens. So I, I am a drug user who wants to come to use this facility. I show up. What happens? So what happens in, the, in that case, what supervised injection site does is allow people who've obtained drugs um, before they come to the site to bring them into the site to use at that site. So they come in, they have their drugs that they've obtained, and they go through some sort of registration check-in process. And um, following that, they are, you know, there's discussion about what's going on, they're offered any support um, or information around uh, safe injections, around needle uh, use, around naloxone kits. If they're coming in, they're complaining because they've got had skin infections relating to their injecting, or if there's 
um, a desire to speak with a counselor, those referrals are made. And then if they want to go on and um, inject, they're taken into another space, which is uh, usually an injection booth, usually a chair of some sort of sort or bench where they can do that. Um, again, there's somebody there who's supervising while that's going on. If the staff don't do the injecting in, uh, in our system, they do, the person does the injecting themselves, but they may need some help in sort of understanding how to do that safely. Then they move from there into an aftercare room, as sometimes it's called. You know, the, the common term is a chill-out room, which is a room that they stay in um, for anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour after they've injected, to, where they're observed to ensure there's not going to be an overdose um, that, that happens or if they want to, you know, continue to talk with somebody or be there for a little while after they've injected. So that's sort of the flow through the, the unit. The specifics, of course, depend on how many people are coming and how long um, there is in terms of, of uh, time to be in, and the specific site has to set up their own procedures. But that's the general nature of, of how it works. But we've heard so many cases of opioid things and, and, and problems in this city. Is there any way to know if someone walks in with their drugs off the street that they've purchased, is there any way for the staff to know that this stuff is actually... Well, as safe as illicit drugs can be? Well, I mean, illicit drugs, that, that is exactly the challenge, right? We don't know what, uh, you don't know what you're getting when you're buying things on the street. And uh, we do know that about 60% of people are injecting what they think is um, uh, uh, morphine or hydromorphone, uh, an opioid-type substance. But other things can also be laced with, um, with fentanyl and carfentanil right. and other opioids. And about... You know, people say about 80% of the time they think that they've got some sort of, of lacing now with some other substance, and, and they think that fentanyl's the most common one for those. So people always need to be cautious at, you know, who are using drugs. That's one of the things we say is, you know, go slow, especially if you're dealing with something new that you haven't had before. Um, use smaller doses because they are more potent than they've ever been. And... Um, and there is uh, some discussion in Ontario of, of extending drug testing at these sites, and so that's been looked at. That's happening out in Vancouver at the Insight place as well, so they're, they're, we're looking at whether that would be incorporated into sites here as well. There was a mother who spoke at council yesterday who told a, uh, just a tragic, I mean a really sad tragic story about her daughter passing away, essentially dying with a needle still in her arm, and said that if this kind of place had existed, she would still be here in all likelihood. Am I, first of all, before we move on, am I pretty close on the details of the story? I don't want to miscast this. No, absolutely. Okay. She spoke about her doctor, Brooklyn, who had been using for, you know, I think it was just under a year or maybe slightly longer than that, and, uh, and about the fact that she very much believed if this kind of service had been available that her daughter would have used it and would have found help through it. Okay, so we have that story, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm criticizing the mother. She's been through a tragedy. That's not what this is, but... Do we have any way of establishing or knowing that people will actually use these places? I mean, I, I, I understand she wants to believe that her daughter would have come to a safe place like this, but do the numbers bear that out? Do most people who are using drugs that we know of in a city, given the opportunity, come and do this? Well, I think when we look at the experience, you know, across the uh, the country over in Vancouver and what's been going on as these sites have been coming up across the country is that... A lot of people are using in their homes and a lot of people are using on the street. And it's particularly those who are using on the street who are more likely to use these sorts of places. They're more likely to go ones that are close by to where they live or where they're hanging out. 
Um, and so that's an important part in terms of locating these, where people are using drugs and where they are are um, having overdoses is one of the ways we're measuring it and looking at it. So we know in that downtown core, that's where drug use uh, and public drug use tends to be higher. So, you know, I think in this case, I think um, this mom, of course, knows her daughter uh, as well as anybody would and, and went through the experience with her and had several conversations with her as she talked about and so had a very good sense that this would have been something that would have been useful for her daughter. It is, uh, it is a tricky one because, again, I don't think, tell me I'm wrong, I don't think anybody is lining up to have one of these in their neighborhood. That's just a reality. You don't necessarily want it. And part of the reason, we only have a minute or so left here, but part of the reason behind this is that there's, there's the perception anyway, there will be a lot more crime around where these things occur. And in about 30 seconds, is there evidence to back that up? Well, what they've seen in uh, in terms of insight when the studies were done was that there wasn't more crime, but that's definitely something we want to monitor and watch. You know, Councillor Spar spoke very uh, very well about this yesterday when he talked about the fact that this kind of activity is going on on the streets now, and what we're trying to do is make it safer, reduce the public injections, reduce the public litter, uh, make it safer, decrease spread of diseases, but we definitely have to work with the community and make sure that uh, any issues are being addressed, they're engaged, and if there's criminal issues that the police are involved in, they will develop their policing strategies and work with us alongside uh, around this issue as well. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for explaining. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me bring in, though, our friend Rick Zamperin, who uh, is the well, he's the everything here. I don't know what he doesn't do around here. So, uh, you know, Rick, it's a lot quicker now not to give your title because you do everything at CHML. So welcome to the show. I, I appreciate <laughs> the, uh, the kudos. That would be quite the business card. It's just my name. Yeah, yours actually <laughs> is the fold-out business card. It's got four parts, and it just keeps <laughs> listing titles that you do. Uh, yeah. we got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. Uh, first, quickly, because we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, but... What was your reaction today when late this afternoon you saw the news that the International Olympic Committee has said uh, Russia is not welcome at these Winter Olympics? There will be no Team Russia at all. What would you, what would you think about that? Well, this is a precursor to my blog tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> you know, huge thumbs up to the IOC, but uh, this should have been done years ago. I mean, they had evidence uh, two, three, four, five years ago that Russia was involved in something underhanded, and they didn't move. I mean, the IAAF uh, made a substantial move in, uh, before the uh, 2016 Rio Games, and the IOC sat on their hands. So the right decision was made. It was made two or three years too late. Uh, this is a, hu- a, a massive penalty and a huge uh, black mark on, on Russian sports. The, the people I feel the sorriest for are those Russian athletes who are clean. Now, that might be a minuscule amount of people, but still, you really got to feel for those individuals who are going to be competing now in, uh, in Pyeongchang under the moniker of OAR, O-A-R uh, you know, Olympic athletes from Russia. I mean, that, that, that really is embarrassing, not only for them, but the entire nation. But you've just hit on what the big problem of this is, Rick, is that because this was state-sponsored doping, we don't know who the clean athletes are, and just because someone hasn't tested positive doesn't necessarily mean they're clean, which is the tricky part about this. They may be, but when the government, when the state has been overseeing all this, we could be talking about someone and saying, oh, how sad for them. They could be as dirty as the next person. We just, it, it, we don't know. Exactly, and I know there is going to be uh, you know, stringent and really strict 
uh, protocols that these Russian athletes have to adhere to before they get uh, to be allowed to get into Pyongyang or Pyeongchang. But uh, I think it's going to be a moot point because I think the Russian uh, Olympic Federation is going to say, uh, screw you, IOC, we're not even coming. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Russia really shot themselves in the foot. Good work by two Canadians, Dick Pound and uh, and McLaren, I forget his first name, mm-hmm. McLaren, I think, uh, who uncovered and investigated and, and, you know, put the pedal to the metal to say, you know, this needs to stop. And hopefully this is an eye opener to any others, you know, nations or athletes out there. Uh, that, you know, if they get caught, there's going to be, you know, serious ramifications. Well, and one more kudo to somebody, and I can't even remember his name, and I apologize for this, but if if you have Netflix at home, before you go to bed tonight, watch the movie Icarus. You'll find it under documentaries, Icarus, I-C-A-R-U-S, and the filmmaker, basically, Rick, he was the guy who, as much as anybody, uncovered this completely by accident, and I don't know if you've seen the movie yet. You should see it if you haven't, but it is absolutely lays out what this whole story is about better than you or I or anyone else could in the time we have on the radio. Yeah, I've watched the trailer. It's on my uh, it's on my watch list. Uh, it, it looks absolutely engrossing and fascinating and eye-opening and, uh, you know, a, a jaw-dropping uh, kind of tell-all on, on how this occurred. Well, essentially, and I'll move on, but essentially I'm not giving anything away. The, the director, the guy who put the movie together, was trying to do like a supersize me kind of first-person movie right. But he was going to show two things. One, how impactful taking steroids by himself could be. And two, how he could absolutely get away with it. And he was going to do this in an amateur bike race one year to the next. And through that, he met the whistleblower who basically told the whole story of the Russian state doping situation. And it is, again, uh, put it on your list. You already have it. Icarus Watch this, and you will understand why Russia is not going to the Olympics this time. All right. The real reason I want... Well, we've got two reasons. The Ticats we may get to. You've already talked today on this station about that. So I want to get to something else first. Last night's Monday Night Football game was... I don't even know how to describe it, Rick. It was a train wreck. It was a bloodbath. It was... I can't remember a more vicious football game... There were guys being taken off on stretchers by ambulances. There were guys taking wicked headshots that were intentional and then standing over them and glowering at them and everything else. Once upon a time, we might have watched this and said, you know what, that was a good old-fashioned, old-school, hard-hitting man's game of football. But sensibilities, Rick, and tastes and attitudes have changed and I'm wondering how many people were watching that game last night or saw the highlights today and said... I don't know if I want to be watching that stuff. I think there are millions of people in that category. A lot of the uh, Twitterverse reaction was along those lines. You know, what are we watching here? You know, this is disgusting. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, I know the, the NFL has taken uh, some measures to uh, make the game safer. There, ha- there are rules for quarterbacks. There are rules for, you know, quote-unquote defenseless players. But that has not stopped uh, incidents such as what we saw last night. Uh, you know, Juju Schuster's hit on Vontae's perfect is a perfect example of a peel-back block where he just knocks his block off, basically, and he didn't really have to. Um, it, it comes down to, I think, the respect, not only for the game, but for the player on the other side of the field. Guys respect, you know, each other as teammates. That's fine. There are, uh, you know, many players in uh, the NFL who have respect for the uh, guy across the field. But there are certain circumstances, and we saw that last night, when things get heated, 
uh, where guys take an extra shot, go for that head hit, play dirty. Basically, at the end of the day, that's what they are doing. They are playing to injure. We saw you know numerous cases in last night's game. And that absolutely has to stop. And how do you make it stop? Well, you severely penalize those guys, giving them a one-game suspension or a fine. I mean, no one was ejected last night, which I find incredibly amazing because you had flags on on both plays. But, I mean, the severity of the blow, uh, Perfect was gone from the game after Schuster hit him. Uh, I, I know the other Cincinnati player, his name escapes me, his hit on Antonio Brown, that was flagged as well. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the NFL has to say, you know what, we got to change these penalties. Yeah, the guys can get flagged, they can get suspended, but it has to be a little bit more than that. A one-game suspension is not going to really hurt these guys who make millions upon millions of dollars. Suspending them for the season is not the right answer either. That's you know way across the line. But it has to be more severe than a one-game suspension. The fine has to be somewhat exorbitant given you know the nature of the money these guys are making. The NFL really has to, and I think that's, this has to come in the next CBA, and the players obviously have to agree to it. And if they were smart, they would, because they're protecting themselves and each other. That, listen, if, if these kinds of hits that what we saw last night continue, this is the penalty. It's more than a one game. Maybe it's a three- or four-game ban. It's a you know quarter of a million or half a million-dollar fine, or maybe even a million-dollar fine, whatever the case is. NFL really has to come down hard on the penalty phase uh, for actions uh, like what we saw last night. See, I'm... I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100% that it's that they are treating these guys with kid gloves and it doesn't work. But the idea of the respect I, I find really interesting because I can remember, and you've seen it, that picture of Frank Gifford lying unconscious uh, yeah. when he was playing for the Giants. Ronnie Lott was celebrated for just crushing guys and laying them out and knocking them out cold. On and on down the list. That has been something. There's always been this in football. But what's changed is the attitudes now that we know the damage that is done to these people, and what hasn't happened, the fans have changed, the broadcasters, I think, to some degree, have changed, the lawyers, heaven knows the lawyers have changed, (laughs) the players haven't changed. Yeah, and I would say that's 100% accurate, and I think that, you know, if those guys don't change, maybe it never will. You know, the what has to change is really the mentality. And I think as as fans, as consumers of sport, we love to see spectacular plays. And if that is a uh, you know a, a, a train wreck of a hit, uh, you know sometimes that's okay as fans. We want to see those explosive plays. As long as and here's the proviso: as long as the player is not hurt, we like to see a massive open ice body check in the NHL. We like to see a big hit in the NFL, a massive sack. But as long as that guy gets up and he's okay and he's not injured and he doesn't suffer a concussion and, you know, on and on and on, I think we're okay with it. But when it comes to those deliberate hits, those intents to injure, those guys getting hurt, then, uh, you know, the script really changes. Well, look, if Scott Stevens, and we're jumping to hockey for a second here, but if Scott Stevens was playing in the NHL today, he's a Hall of Famer right now. He's in the Hall of Fame. Scott Stevens, if he starts playing hockey right now the way he played as a player then, where he was, got you came across the blue line, and if your head was not up, it was going to be in the third row of seats. Yeah. He would not be in the Hall of Fame if he was starting now. He probably would be banned for life within the season because that he, just we yeah. just don't allow that anymore. He might be the most despised guy in the no, NHL. unquestionably, he might, he unquestionably might be the most suspended guy in the NHL, no doubt about it. Unquestionably, and you go back even further than that. I always laugh when 
We talk about the glory days. Whenever we talk about the glory days of the NHL, and I get people, and you've heard this too. I'm sure you've had emails. Anyone who works in sports has heard this before. Oh, it never was as this violent back when we were kids. Back when it was in the old days, it was way less violent. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Do you know how the Rocket Richard riot started? <laughs> he cracked his stick over a player's head and then punched a referee in the face. I don't think that would happen today, and I'm going back thinking, you know, Rocket Richard, you do that today. You break your stick over someone's head and slug at the linesman or the referee. I don't think you're playing again. Yeah, I mean, there's numerous exa- examples of that. Eddie Shore in hockey, yes. another violent guy in the ice. Uh, Ty Cobb in baseball, you know, cleats to, to somebody's knee and taking them out at second base. Look at the Broad Street bullies of the 70s in the NHL, you know, line brawls and you know, massive chaos. I mean, this has happened uh, for decades on end. I think the difference now is the knowledge that we have of the effect of these injuries. You know, CTE, whether it's football or whatever the sport, those repeated head blows are, are causing some significant damage in an athlete's life later in life. And knowledge is power. And knowing this, we know that this game has to change. And what, what the magic answer is or the magic pill, we don't know. But uh, I, I think you know, if, if a player doesn't have respect for another player and there's an intent to injure there, you got to get that guy out of the game. I, again, I go back to my point. It seems as though everybody in society has been able to adjust to this or has adjusted their, their focus, their view, whatever, except for a lot of the players. And where this really becomes interesting to me, Rick, is we just had, how much was the lawsuit that the uh, or the settlement that the NFL had with its former players? I can't even remember. It was oh, a huge it, number. It, it was in the billions. Yeah. Right. There was a huge number. If I'm a current NFL player, and I, even after all this, and even if they've put rules in place, and I see something like this happening, like what happened last night, and nobody gets ejected, and they get a one-game suspension, when I retire... Do I not already have grounds for a lawsuit saying I was not protected? It seems to me the NFL is really opening the door to itself to another one of these down the road. I know the NFL on the sideline has the new concussion oh, sure. or, or whatever they call it, and that's fine. <clears throat> but you look at you know two, two of the most violent sports uh, and, and how they've changed over the last, I don't know, 10 years. We'll start with the NFL. Yeah, they have new rules. Uh, as I mentioned, that defensive player for the quarterback, they are more cognizant of the impact of head injuries. There's no doubt about that. The other sport I'm referring to is hockey and the headshots and the point of contact and, and all that kind of stuff. We've seen, I, I think the stats will bear this, a lot less uh, um, deliberate head blows, if you will, you know, elbows to the head. Uh, those incidental kind of hits are always going to be there because, yes, it is a contact sport. It is violent at times. And it's very fast. In the corners, and it's very fast. You're on skates. Sometimes you can't control uh, what you do in a, in, you know, in a split second. But I think the NHL has done a much better job of penalizing those individuals, of uh, trying to make their game a little more safer. Uh, it's not perfect. There's guys that still you know, suffer concussions, and there's guys that still go out with that intent to injure. But I think it's a lot less in the NHL that we're seeing in the NFL. And I think that mindset, for whatever reason, has not changed 100% in the NFL, and that really has to. And I want to pick up your point again, because, Rick, I think you are so correct on this, and I've never understood it in any sport that when it comes to negotiations with the league, the player they all have a players' association, and I've never understood how it is that the players' associations always fight for the protection of the accused or of the doer of the act as opposed to the victim of the act. It's always the case. And if 
I'm sure that if the NFL had hearings for these guys, I don't even know how many, there were three, four, five yesterday, their Players Association would argue for the person who committed the infraction in every single case rather than saying, you know what, the guy whose head you just knocked off, he's paying the same dues as you are, and you know what, you were an idiot. So we're actually fighting for him today. We want you suspended for eight games. Well, and, and and the NFL today upheld you know the suspensions that they handed down to those individuals that uh, committed those uh, you know big hits last night. Schuster, you know, given the one game ban, uh, there's an automatic appeal process, and the NFL said no. I mean, you committed this, you were flagged for it, you should have been ejected from the game, and you weren't. Now you're going to sit for one game. So I think it's it's almost disgusting that an agent and a, and a players association will say no, we're going to appeal this. We don't think the league is right in this regard. Well, it's 100% right. You just lambasted uh, a guy who never saw you coming, and you hit him in the head. I mean, what more do you want? Think of the other person. Put yourself in that other player's shoes, and now you were just drilled into the turf for really no specific reason other than, uh, you know, uh, the guy committing a a peelback block. Uh, The the PA has to do a much better job of protecting everyone, not just those in circumstances that uh, are are facing suspension or have done wrong on the field. They've got to look at the big picture here because – You know, an NFL uh, average uh, lifespan is about two, two and a half years. Uh, And a lot of those guys uh, don't make it for a variety of reasons, some of which are through injury. So uh, uh, when the next CBA comes, and I know NFL players have uh, talked about making, you know, NBA-type money, one, they got to realize that, you know, their rosters are much bigger than NBA rosters. Two, they also have to realize it's a much more violent game, and they have to do a better job of protecting themselves. You probably believe, I believe that they do talk about these things within the Players Association when they have their annual meeting. Surely this has to come up about, at some point, Do we? what do we want to do to protect our players? It has to have been a point of discussion. And I, 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 you know, I know that I'm wrong for saying this. I know that I'm being ridiculous. But, geez, Rick, half the time when I think there's got to be somebody, one of the players, when those discussions come up, who argues against the Players Association going to bat for the victim as opposed to the accused. And I kind of sit there and go, geez, I wish that that guy or those guys who were the ones arguing that we should defend the person who did it, not the victim, I kind of wish they would actually take one of those shots for a change and then see if their position changes. I don't want anyone to get hurt. But if you're going to take that position and say, no, the money, the fine, the lost revenue is more important than that guy's scrambled brain, Let's see if you still believe that when it's your brain that's scrambled. Yeah, you know what? The players, you know, you ask any player, and, uh, you know, the question is, why do you play this game? You know, some would, some would say fame, some would say money, some would say, you know, for the love of the game. Not one of them is going to say, uh, I, I'm playing this game to hurt somebody else. <laughs> but, but that happens when things obviously get heated. We see it in a variety of sports. But they have to come back to that, that center point to say, I'm playing this for a specific reason, and it's not to possibly end another player's career. Or the other way around. I'm really looking forward to when I'm 50 drooling and having to eat pablum. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, there's been no one, I don't think, maybe there's a masochist out there who's really looking forward to that, but I've never heard that. It's it just I, I, I watched parts of that game yesterday. I saw the highlights for bits of it as well. And I just look and I go, how do the players not get it? How do they not get it? And how are they still missing the point that people, maybe there's some people who still loved it. I mean, people still love car wrecks in NASCAR, but that's the other side, Rick. Even then, does anybody like a, everyone loves watching a good 25 car pile up in NASCAR until they have to bring the ambulance out and carry someone out who's dead. 
then it's not fun anymore. We want to see the cars crash and everything, but we don't want to see people die. And and perhaps the most astonishing thing from the Monday nighter between the Steelers and the Bengals is this. All of this chaos and dirty hits and, and intent to injure happened after Ryan Chazier, the Steelers linebacker, was carted off the field and had no feeling in his lower yes, extremities yes. and is still in hospital. And, I mean, players on both teams were brought to tears, basically not, not knowing if he was ever going to walk or even play again. Um, and, and after that, you would think they'd have the mindset of, you know, we nearly lost somebody on the field, but they went a complete 180 and, and started doing all the crap that they started doing. And so as Ben, who's here operating tonight and taking phone calls, as he just whispered in my ear, and it's a great point, the guys last night who did these things that potentially could have caused serious health concerns that goes exactly to what that settlement that cost billions of dollars, all those kind of things. The guys who did the stuff the NFL says, we have to get out of the game. They get a game suspension, and Tom Brady gets four games for taking air out of a football. (laughs) Yes. It's all relative. That's the NFL for you. Just before I let you go, the follow-up to this, and we never got to the Ticats, and that's okay. We'll do that another day. But the follow-up to this, though, is does the NFL not, should the NFL not be somewhat concerned when they have games like this and they still have situations like this that they need players down the road. They need kids in football. They need to have that constant refilling of the stream of athletes should they not be concerned that a bunch of parents are watching this saying, wait a second, there is no chance in the world I'm putting my kid in football now? They should be tremendously concerned. Let's not forget, this was Monday night football. Yeah, it doesn't have the ratings as it used to, but it's still prime time. You have millions of eyeballs on your product, and they're seeing that. Uh, there's, there's mothers, there's even fathers out there uh, who are thinking, man, you know, maybe we should... Uh, think twice about enrolling uh, a little Jimmy or even little Susie in Pop Warner football or, or, or Tim Hortons football uh, and 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 possibly make a career out of it or even play at a, a somewhat elite level. These have to be a, you know, a pro kind of system for guys to uh, and girls to suffer concussions. We saw, I think it was on the East Coast this year, where a team, uh, their player, I think it was like eight or nine players suffered concussions in the uh, first half of the game, and the coach said, that's it, we're done. I mean, players look at uh, all these kind of stories. They read it in the newspapers, on radio, on TV, you know, concussion problems uh, related to football, and there's a lot of parents that are saying, nope, let's uh, let's enroll our kids in something else. Yes or no, you've got a son. Would you let him play football? I would if he wanted to, um, but I would I would certainly be, and I, I'm, you know, I, he played soccer, and I was concerned about injuries, but I would say even more so about football, that, you know, there's always a risk out there. Uh, but if he wanted to play, I would allow it, although, man, I'd be terribly concerned. Maybe he'd be the kicker, and that's about it. <laughs> well, when, when, when he was playing soccer, you were his head coach. I was more concerned with his win-loss record. Yeah, well, it started slow, but uh, we picked it up. We, we could have made the World Cup, i tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, some good teams didn't. Oh, we won't bring that up again. I don't want to make you cry as we send you away. Rick Zanfran, thanks for the time tonight, as always. Appreciate right, it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. One of the things we hear a lot these days, uh, because we're in a time of people talking about climate change and other things, is they say, trust the science. Trust the science. It's almost a mantra now. Trust the science. Science is correct. Science doesn't lie. Science is real. And I would say that most of the time I would think it is. 
But what if it isn't? What if there are times when it isn't? What if there are cases where science is being molded to fit a box that is politically correct or that fits with what we want it to fit? What if conclusions, some conclusions, are politically contentious? What then? Do we ignore them? Do we pretend they don't exist? What do we do? Well, my next guest has been asking those questions. Uh, Dr. John Anomaly is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona who joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Uh, it's great to be with you, Scott. This is uh, no doubt, and I'm sure after you've written about this before, you've uh, learned this if you didn't know already, and I'm sure you did, but this is a massively charged topic because to suggest this sort of flies in the face that science is always true and always leads us to the correct answers. You're, we're supposed to believe everything science tells us. You're saying maybe not every time. Yeah, the idea is we've got to be careful, and in particular, um, when there is a conclusion that we prefer to be true. Um, in other words, there's a political outcome that we'd like, a uh, moral outcome that we'd like, uh, often the scientific research is infected by what psychologists call motivated reasoning. We want something to be true, and so we draw up a bunch of facts or we do research in such a way that it's likely to confirm our desire for a certain hypothesis to be true. But that is, on its face, intellectually and academically and in every other way, corrupt, is it not? Well, it sure is, and I'm not a practicing scientist, but um, I've done enough reading and I've read enough in political psychology to understand this seems to be a human universal. There's nothing new about this. I mean, this is the way the human brain works. Um, but I think I've been especially keen over the last few years as I've seen people who I used to regard as friends of science blatantly denying scientific conclusions when they, when they interfere with their narrative. So I'll just give you a couple of quick yeah, examples. Yeah, please, give me an example of one or two. Uh, as, as an academic, um, you know, we often take these diversity training programs in order to comply with, with laws in the United States, the Title IX law in particular, which guarantees an equal access to education for everyone. These training programs that bureaucrats create emphasize things like implicit bias. And the idea is, hey, look, we're all unconsciously biased, even if not consciously biased. And what we need to do is figure out those biases, understand them, and then, uh, for example, recruit people in such a way that we overcome our biases. So we all have, I don't know, we're biased in favor of white men or something like that. And so what we need to do is explicitly counteract this bias in the classroom. So call on minorities first or call on women first or something like that. I have no objections to that in principle, but, but it turns out the science of implicit bias is itself explicitly biased. Um, for many years, they have there have been a number of of experiments suggesting that this exists. And in the last two years, there were meta-analyses, that is, scientific papers written that looked at all of the previous papers written that say basically it's somewhere between non-existent or between not explaining very much. Sure, we all have biases, but actually, as it turns out, even when we have biases, for example, racial or sexist biases and so on, most people aren't acting on those biases when it comes to hiring decisions and so on. So I've become increasingly skeptical of, of things like that. That's just one example of many um, where really extreme claims are made about biases we have. And as it turns out, the, the, the science is pretty much bunk. Well, and we do have, it's very clear, I think, and that we have things that we don't want to believe. And I don't know whether they're true sure. or whether they're untrue, but we go into things 
with a preconceived notion of what is acceptable to us. And one of the ones that comes to mind for me right away is we had this guy at Google. How long ago was it? Eight months ago? Nine months ago? Who wrote a paper. Oh, less than that. I think it was about three, four months. Three or four months ago. Okay. And he wrote a paper essentially saying what? That there are that men and women are different creatures. We see things differently. We may have different interests or different strengths. And I think that most people, if you hooked them up to a lie detector and injected them with sodium pentothal, would say, I actually agree that men and women are not exactly the same. And yet when he wrote this, he was... Well, I don't even think he's working for Google anymore. He was pilloried for this because we are exactly the same, apparently. And this is just one example, and it's one very public example. But it's, I think it kind of gets to the point of we have things that we are not willing to discuss. And so I can only imagine that if I am now working on an experiment or if I'm doing some kind of science and my answer that if I know that the conclusion I'm about to present is going to give me that kind of response, I don't want to be near that. That's right. So let's let's take two kinds of cases. The first is James Damore, who you mentioned from Google. And by the way, he was fired two days after that memo came out. Let's take him. He's not, he's not a scientist. He's a programmer, but he, was, he did a pretty good job of summarizing the science of sex differences. And let's take an actual scientist. So, so quickly run through the examples. With Damore, he was summarizing other scientists, many of whom are women, who study the science of sex differences. And he made it very clear that the differences are relatively small, um, Women tend to do a bit better on IQ tests with verbal reasoning and men with spatial reasoning. They're small, uh, but they have some explanatory power. Women have slightly different interests. Uh, They tend to show off a bit less. We're all sort of familiar with that. If you have children, you see that. Um, And there are good evolutionary reasons for this in all species. Males tend to compete for access to females as well as access to food and social status. He mentions a few of these things and sort of says, look, I support modest efforts at diversity and attracting more women, um, but we're probably not going to hit 50-50. It's very careful in the way he said that. And by the way, he didn't write that for the press. He wrote it as an internal memo to Google after they solicited advice on their diversity programs. That's the advice he gave them. Let's get some modest efforts at diversity, but let's not expect 50-50. Here's the research. For that, as as he said, I mean, he was pilloried and eventually fired pretty quickly. But if now, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go no, uh, sure. Okay, so let me let me take one more case. Now, that's just an ordinary person. That's not a scientist. But of course, ordinary people will see these cases and be more and more reluctant to speak out. And I've seen this in the academy for a really long time. I mean, faculty are terrified, especially uh, pre-tenure graduate students and so on, of expressing their true beliefs, especially if they're conservatives, because they're in the minority. Um, even if they're right about the science, you know, so whether it be climate change, sex differences, race differences, whatever, any of those are sort of, they're, they're, um, they're out of bounds. And, and let me just say, by the way, one of the reasons I'm so interested in this is I had a conversation a month or two ago with an academic after the Demore case, and I sent him some, some papers saying, hey, look, it turns out there are some sex differences and they have some explanatory power. And he asked me, well, if that's true, then why aren't more scientists coming out and saying that it's true and giving the evidence? And I thought, that's actually a really good question. Well, and, and I and think, I thought, is it not an obvious answer, though? Is it not an obvious answer that I've seen examples now of someone who comes out with something that is flies in the face of acceptable, and I use the air quotes for acceptable, acceptable yeah. answers. Yeah. No way do I want to get myself in the middle of that thing, because it's a no-win situation. 
That's right. Yeah. So that that's exactly right. And then people, this is the sad part, journalists and ordinary citizens who don't have time to do the research, they then infer from the fact that there aren't a lot of people publicly saying X, even if X is true or justified, well, X, X probably isn't true or the evidence isn't in yet or something like that. Um, and so we end up getting this idea that because prominent scientists in large numbers aren't saying this thing, that it's probably not true. Um, hmm. And we've all seen what happened in the case of race, of so things like Charles Murray, right? He's made claims since the 1990s that, look, the differences between races are pretty small, um, but they have some explanatory power. We all see that in sports. I mean, you know, when you see sprinters at the Olympics, I mean, it's somewhere between 99 and 100% West Africans. Long-distance runners are almost exclusively East Africans and Europeans. We all sort of, you know, our eyes don't lie to us. And we understand this, but as soon as you make that claim about mental abilities or mental interests, suddenly it is out of bounds and you get run off of campus. And so people have learned to keep their mouths shut. They simply won't say what the evidence supports. Okay, so let's say there was someone who could come up with an experiment, and maybe they have, but let's say someone came up with an experiment that came to one of those conclusions that we believe there are some kind of differences. And, and I mean, where this a lot of time falls apart is difference doesn't necessarily mean better or worse, but we don't want to hear that. It's exactly. different means we're, it, it's different. So if yeah. someone presented this evidence, even if it was done with replicable yeah. pro, you know, process and where you could show how it worked, do you believe that a university faculty, that administration, that senior people with tenure would stand behind that professor if he presented or she presented something that was that controversial? I hate to say it, but the answer is absolutely not. And we saw they'd run for Harvard. the hills. Absolutely. Well, we saw it at Harvard. So one of the reasons, actually, we know so much about sex differences in particular is when Larry Summers, the president of Harvard, and then eventually an Obama administration economic advisor, really famous economist, when he said at a private meeting at Harvard, he was asked his opinion, how do we get more women into STEM? He said, look, like there are some things we can do and here's some strategies. And then he said, yeah, but one of the things is probably not as w- many women on average are as interested in it. So once again, like James Damore, uh, probably we can't expect to get 50-50 in, say, physics or mathematics, but we can make some modest efforts at recruiting and so on. He was absolutely fired. He was denounced by hundreds of faculty, and he was subsequently fired. Now, Steven Pinker stood up for him, to his great credit, and then actually wrote a couple of famous columns uh, defending the science of sex differences. If it weren't for that, probably we wouldn't have even had Steven Pinker's uh, summary of this research, and the research would be sort of ignored by by mainstream journalists. So in any case, um, we've learned repeatedly that saying things for which there is credible evidence is absolutely unacceptable on campuses, even when you have tenure, and even when you qualify it. So the conclusions for some things are are figured out, are established long before the experiment is ever done. That's right, because of moral reasons. Because, as you said, and, and I really like what, how you put it, um, often what will happen is someone will make a claim, like, look, there are these groups, whether it be men and women or ethnic groups or whatever, really small differences, and these differences go in all kinds of directions. Like men, again, seem to have a slightly higher spatial reasoning capacity, women slightly higher verbal does that mean men are better than women? Of course not. And the people who write like this, and often they're women, never suggest that. In fact, they explicitly and repeatedly denounce it. 
And the same thing goes for people like Nicholas Wade or, or, uh, or Charles Murray when they say things like, look, small differences in IQ may have some predictive power, but they absolutely don't justify p- treating people as mere members of a group. They'll say repeatedly, people need to be judged as individuals, and often different groups have, are better at different things. So West Africans, on average, are better at sprinting. East Africans are better at long-distance running. Does that mean one is superior to another? Of course not. But people think, they mistakenly infer, if you're saying they're group differences, you're establishing a racial or a gender hierarchy. And therefore, that's out of bounds. You can't say that. And I'm assuming then that there are a lot of studies on a lot of things, and it's not necessarily racial or gender or anything else, but there are a number of studies that won't even be done because if you're a sponsor, if you're someone who would put up money and funding for this and you see there's a possibility of where this thing could go, you don't want to be putting your money and having your name attached to this in case this goes horribly wrong. Yeah, I suppose that's right. Now, now in, in some cases, I you know, that maybe that makes sense. I mean, you don't want to be funding or spending your time doing research that's thoroughly unpromising. You know, it's going to get you scorned. Like, I don't know, uh, research into the truth of astrology or something like that, right? <laughs> like, people are going to rightly ridicule you, and it's a waste of time and money. But in a lot of these cases, it's an open question. And it would be of great social significance for us to know the answer. Just before but, I let you go, because we're just short on time, and sure. I apologize for cutting sure. off, but we're short on time. No, no. But I do have, there is one thing, though, that is on this, and that is there are people, there have been people who have tried to use science to push what is a racist position or that is a Absolutely. sexist position. So how do we discern? Not everybody who comes up with an unpopular conclusion is correct and just uh, and just maligned because nobody likes what they've said. There are people who have done things and come to conclusions that they've set out to do yep. that are not correct. How do we discern those differences? Well, it is difficult. We have to be careful in interpreting the evidence. And this is just a fact of being a person in a, in the, in a world full of information. I mean, we have to navigate the sea of studies. We have to cultivate skepticism. And when there's some implication in particular of group differences and that sort of thing, well, then we need to constantly remind ourselves that it does not follow from any of this, that some group is inferior to another group. People should be treated as individuals. They should be respected and so on. And so, again, what we need to do is just cultivate skepticism and, and uh, rather than trying to bury the evidence or bury the person who claims to have a new theory, um, we need to just be really careful, reserve our judgment, and then remember that none of this is threatening to our basic humanity. Uh, figuring out how the world works ultimately is something that's going to help all of us. Dr. John Anomaly, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Arizona. Fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much. Uh, you can go read his stuff as well, but it's a really interesting, interesting position to those who believe that science always has all the answers and they're always truthful. Most of the time. The vast majority of the time. But if he's correct, not all the time. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.